Hello and welcome back to Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna. This is Soleil and Ramona Gaylord. In this week's notebook, we are going to discuss one of North America's most awe-inspiring, legendary, controversial, beautiful, and extremely important apex predators, Canis lupus, or the gray wolf. This remarkable mammal historically occurred all over North America, except for the southeastern United States and California west of the Sierra Nevada. And the last gray wolf native to Colorado was killed in 1945 at the end of a 70-year campaign to eradicate wolves that was spearheaded by the federal government on behalf of the livestock industry. This is according to Robert Edward, president of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund. So, an interesting vignette. In June of this year, on a remote northwestern Colorado road, a truck driven by a state biologist scared an animal. The biologist and her husband driving the truck watched as an adult gray wolf crossed the dirt road before it dashed over a hill. What happened next could be a landmark in the natural history of Colorado. Moments after the adult disappeared, the biologist reported a dark gray puppy following the same path. This sighting could mean a group of gray wolves aren't just living in Colorado for the first time since humans eradicated the species in 1940s, but that these predators could be breeding in our state as well. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife spokeswoman Rebecca Farrell said in her office has no reason to doubt a report from one of its own, but it does remain a solitary report. So Farrell was quoted as saying, we don't have any photographic evidence or scat to provide additional confirmation, but apparently the Colorado Public Radio News obtained details of this alleged wolf sighting through an open records request. So since the biologist was on her personal time, she reported the pup through an forum open to the public. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirmed the report came from a staff biologist, but redacted her identity. And um, while this sighting is not solid evidence of wild wolf breeding, it arrives at a time, a really important time, of political crossroads for this species. It just so happens, if you haven't noticed already, that on our that in our state of Colorado, we will vote in three weeks on whether to reintroduce wolves to our very own Western Slope. Specifically, Proposition 114 asked voters if they would support the reintroduction of wolves on designated lands west of the Continental Divide, and then to utilize scientific data to guide the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to implement this plan. And so your vote of yes on this supports wolf reintroduction, while a no answer is against this proposition. So to help voters clarify, clarify your thoughts on this proposition, and for listeners out there to KOTO's Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna to just understand a little bit more about wolf biology and natural history in general, we have invited a very special team of experienced biologists to discuss their work in wolf conservation, including Dr. Doug Smith, lead biologist at Yellowstone National Park for the wolf reintroduction. So our first guest is Jonathan Proctor, who is the Rockies and Plains Program Director for Defenders of Wildlife. Jonathan has worked in wildlife and wilderness conservation since 1990, and he has been a wilderness ranger with the U.S. Forest Service in Oregon and Montana and for Predator Conservation Alliance in Montana and Colorado. And just on a little personal note, Jonathan loves Telluride, and he has come down and visited us here in Telluride several times, and he actually helped to coordinate bringing some live live rescue wolves to Mountain Film a couple years ago so that folks could would have the opportunity to just interact and experience, not really interact, but experience a wolf up close, which is a really, really amazing thing. 
So on that note, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your work in the field of conservation. To begin, Proposition 114 would direct Colorado Parks and Wildlife to create a plan to reintroduce wolves by December 2023. So Jonathan, can you tell us the role of Defenders and Wildlife of Wildlife in creating this proposition? Sure, and thank you so much for inviting me to your show. Um, so Defenders of Wildlife is a national nonprofit conservation group, and we work on restoring the most imperiled wildlife in North America. And wolves were eradicated from almost the entire lower 48 states by the mid-1900s. Uh, since then, we our country has realized uh, that that was a mistake, and we've been reintroducing wolves in, in certain areas uh, including the Northern Rockies, which happened 25 years ago, to help restore the natural balance by bringing this keystone predator back. And Defenders of Wildlife has helped with uh, getting Proposition 114 on the ballot in Colorado. Uh, we have a, a crew, including myself, who live here in Colorado. And um, uh, we helped the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund, who is the, is the lead group in this ballot effort. Uh, but Defenders of Wildlife and other groups have helped with... Uh, getting the signature gathering effort uh, last fall. We've, we've helped uh, with the fundraising and signature gathering, which was uh, we got over 200,000 Coloradans to sign petitions to uh, put this on the ballot. That's we've amazing. With fundraising. Uh, yes, and we've helped with um, outreach and education for many, many years. And I'll also note that we helped with working with uh, ranchers uh, across the West in areas where wolves and other predators um, inter interact with livestock, helping to reduce conflicts and uh, try to uh, prevent them before they start. Okay, well, thank you, Jonathan, for, for your all that hard work. Yeah, for your hard work on that initiative. Um, and I am curious, and I think many listeners here in southwestern Colorado are especially eager to learn how the, these wolves will be selected, um, from what packs they would be acquired. Um, in which part of Colorado that the research has shown to be the best new habitat for these wolves. So can you speak to that, Jonathan? How many, where they will come from? And um, do you, are you concerned about these animals being hunted? Well, that is a lot of, those are many good questions with a lot of, of details. And the way that we've helped write the ballot initiative is such that we leave most of those questions up to the biologists at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, you know, we, we get we hear oftentimes that we're trying to do ballot box biology through this this ballot initiative, and it's inappropriate for the voters to make all of these decisions about wolves. Well, first of all, there, there's two things here. First of all, the politicians in this state and the the commission that runs Colorado Parks and Wildlife have for decades refused to discuss or uh, or uh, promote restoring this important keystone species to our state. Therefore, we're taking the politicians out of the picture and going straight to the voters to tell our leaders, our state leaders, if we co collectively want to restore this species back. However, we are leaving all of the biology and decisions to the biologists at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. They're required by the ballot initiative to uh, come up with a science-based plan and with public input um, to direct wolf reintroduction in western Colorado 
which is where the suitable habitat remains. Uh, the, the, you know, eastern Colorado is is not suitable habitat any longer for for wolves, but western Colorado clearly is with over 17 million acres of public land, the largest elk herd in the country, and a credible population of deer as well. It is incredibly suitable habitat, but the state will make the decisions of which kind of of a wolf, where we'll get them from, how many, where to exactly to reintroduce them. But um, we know, uh, and, and biologists have made clear, it's not a question of if we can succeed in restoring wolves. That's the easy part. In Yellowstone and central Idaho, it only took 15 wolves a year for two years in those two, two spots to get that population going. We just need a pulse of wolves that can pair up, find each other, pair up, mate, and create new packs. Uh, the wolves can do the rest. Okay, and on that note, I'm just wondering, so we just need to be on hold to to wait until this thing passes, and then the biologists will start get to work on... Uh, ironing out these specific questions that everybody has about when, where, how many, etc. Correct, and that will be up to the science and also public input. So it will be up to Coloradans to craft our own wolf reintroduction plan. And I believe, based on all of the knowledge we've learned from other wolf reintroduction efforts in the Northern Rockies and in the Southwest, uh, we have over 25 years of data and information and experience to draw from. So we can do it even better in Colorado in a science-based way that also takes the concerns and, uh, of Coloradans into a consideration to make the best reintroduction effort uh, that we can and to reduce conflict from the very small amount that it is down to e- even a lower amount. So... Jonathan, on that biological note, you once said that the work in Yellowstone offers a blueprint for bringing the predator back to its historic habitat, and you've, you've touched upon this, but um, we have 25 years of experience and data and facts to understand the benefits of wolf restoration in the Northern Rockies, and you also said that we can use these lessons learned and finish the job here in the Southern Rockies. So, Jonathan, Jonathan I'd love if you could briefly explain how the Yellowstone National Park Program served as a template to draft this proposal. Sure. Well, uh, in addition to just Yellowstone National Park and the wolf reintroduction that happened there beginning 25 years ago, the entire Northern Rockies region um, was, uh, wolves were restored in the entire region, so they were simultaneously also reintroduced to central Idaho, and then a few were coming down naturally from Canada into northern Montana. So as a whole, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming's mountainous uh, terrains, uh, wolves were restored there. And the blueprint has, has proven, like I, uh, like I mentioned earlier, extremely easy for us to accomplish. We merely need to take, you know, 15 to 30 to 40 wolves over uh, one, two, three years. We'll, we'll let them determine, you know, when they when they take hold release them into um, the, the uh, most remote parts of western Colorado where the habitat and the food prey is abundant, and they will do the rest. But the blueprint of what we've learned really will show us what we can expect in, in the southern Rockies of western Colorado uh, based on what we've seen in the northern Rockies. And the, uh, the conditions are, are similar, if not even better, here in, in Colorado. But what we've learned is wolves help restore the natural balance. And so we have not seen a reduction in elk herds. In fact, 
to the contrary, in, the, in, both, in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, all three have more elk now than they had 25 years ago when wolves were first reintroduced. But one could argue that the populations are healthier because wolves, of course, target um, the sick and the weak and help keep over period, longer periods of time elk uh, healthier. They also keep elk acting like elk always have. So the problem we have in Colorado is in the absence of the predator that they've always had, elk are now um, over long periods of time hanging out more and eating more uh, vegetation along streams and rivers and causing degradation. Uh, restoring wolves will help act, elk act like elk always have for hundreds of thousands of years in the presence of wolves, moving around the landscape more, which will um, create all sorts of changes in the environment. Absolutely. And, yeah, and our, so many other that is a perfect segue, Jonathan. Thank you so much because our next guest uh, will be speaking exactly to this uh, wonderful biology and all the interactions that happen with all the different species in Yellowstone National Park specifically. So we'll get to hear um, more from Do Dr. Doug Smith on voice here on Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna. And with us today, uh, we just are hearing the input from Jonathan Proctor uh, with the Defenders of Wildlife. And we so appreciate your input and help uh, to all of us listeners out here to understand the intricacies of Proposition 114 on our Colorado uh, ballot this November 3rd. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you. We are delighted to have Dr. Doug Smith with us today on KOTO for Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna to discuss the natural history of wolves. Doug is a senior wildlife biologist in Yellowstone National Park. He supervises the wolf, bird, and elk programs, formerly three jobs now combined into one under Doug's supervision. His original job was the project leader for the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which involved the reintroduction and restoration of wolves to the Yellowstone National Park. Dr. Smith received a Bachelor's of Science in Wildlife Biology from the University of Idaho, and while working on his degree, he became involved with the iconic studies of wolves and moose on the Isle Royale with Rolf Peterson, which led to a long-term involvement with this study as well as a master's degree in biology under Peterson at the Michigan Technological University. And for all you non-biologist listeners out there, uh, that work is really, really cool field biology. But then all of Doug's, Doug's life has been really, really fascinating, so stay tuned. Doug's master's research focused on beavers in northern Minnesota and resulted in an 11-year study of beavers in Voyagers National Park, which eventually led to a PhD from the University of Nevada, Reno, in ecology, evolution, and conservation biology. His professional interests include wolf population dynamics, wolf-prey relationships, restoration of ecological processes, raptor conservation, and beaver population dynamics. And just a little side note here, Doug has also visited our little box canyon town of Telluride years ago to speak about wolf reintroduction in Yellowstone. And he also did a little birding on the side, and I was lucky enough to join him for a venture. And having met Doug, 
I can tell you he is as big of a character as the animal he has worked to conserve. His love for and knowledge of the natural world is contagious and real. From the wild woolly wolves to the smallest of warblers, Doug, as my friend Amy Cannon said upon meeting him, quote, is the real thing. So thank you so much for joining us and what an honor to have one of the icons of North American wildlife biology here on our little Kodo radio show. Doug, your research and work in conservation is so rich, inspirational, and multifaceted on many levels. It is honestly tough to pick a question to start, um, but to begin and to bring in a personal facet while we also weaving in the facts about the program, Doug, if you could tell us how you came to be leader of the Yellowstone National Park Wolf Reintroduction, what it meant to you and why? Luck. <laughs> or being in the right place at the right time. And if I learned anything from beavers, uh, it was perseverance. Just stick with it. Um, and so after an introduction like that, I kind of don't know where to start. But that is essentially how I got to be the project leader was the beaver method of sticking with it. Um, yeah, so I've been had a lifelong interest in nature due to where I grew up in rural Ohio and my dad had a camp and that sparked my interest and then I found wolves of my own and got my first wolf job in high school as a wolf mother, father, I guess would be more appropriate. I hand reared wolf pups which wow. was the foot foot in the door to get to Isle Royale, which led to Minnesota, which led to Yellowstone. And I came to Yellowstone. It was just a job I applied for to do the reintroduction. And yeah, that's how I got it. And I've been there ever since. Well, fascinating. So that it's is... always been on, in your heart, I guess. <laughs> I guess it has, yes. <laughs> So, Doug, our family friend, um, Dr. Eric Larson, worked with you on mapping the changes of aspen trees over time. And I remember seeing photos of the aspen stands before and after wolves were introduced and the astounding changes that took place with these trees. It's like a, a textbook icon um, with one of your other favorite keystone species, the beaver, only once the wolves were in place and actively hunting elk. So I would love for you to describe the dramatic changes that played out before your eyes as you walked through Yellowstone studying the wolf. Well, this has been one of the most talked about, debated, and controversial aspects of having wolves back. It's certainly the most complex, um, and kind of nobody saw it coming, but what it refers to is a trophic cascade. And a, a trophic cascade can be confusing to define, but very simply put, it's uh, indirect impacts. In other words, how do wolves impact vegetation? They don't eat vegetation. Well, the middle link are elk and deer. They eat vegetation and wolves eat them. And so this is kind of the ripple effect of having wolves back. And there are a lot of studies done before wolves were reintroduced but no one really studied this or saw this coming. And it's an interesting story because the history of Yellowstone is, is that it eradicated pretty much all of the carnivores except bears, uh, but their population was much reduced. But the two primary carnivores, wolves and cougars, were completely eliminated. Another minor one, coyotes, were reduced. And this caused the elk population to increase so much 
that it impacted this vegetation I just referred to. Now I'm going to talk mostly about the woody vegetation. There's also grasses and forbs out there, and evidence suggests that the increased elk population increased their productivity. But that's mm-hmm. another story. But it definitely negative impact negatively impacted the woody vegetation, the willow, aspen, and cottonwood. And Eric Larson is the one who specialized studying the aspen, and he has the best data. And what his and others' data basically indicated was the middle part of the 20th century, all three of those woody species were negatively impacted by elk, probably because of this carnivore eradication that that occurred. And so that was the middle part of the century. And as wolves came back, we reintroduced them. Cougars came back on their own, and bears increased that started to impact the elk population, and so did human hunting, because human hunting outside the park increased because the state of Montana thought there were too many elk. So there were a number of factors, we call it multi-causal, that caused the elk population to decline after wolves were introduced. A lot of people just like to blame the wolves. But long story short, this human effect, this carnivore effect, caused the elk population to decline, and then we started to see a response in this woody vegetation. And Eric has the best data. He had 113 fixed plots that he read most every year. And what he saw gradually was kind of one by one, these plots used to be 100% browsed by elk, and then slowly they stopped. And not entirely, just lessened. And this less browsing allowed the aspen to bounce back. Same with the willows. The cottonwoods is a slightly different story that I'll leave out for now. And so this regrowth of the willow and the aspen had all kinds of uh, trickle-down effects. Many that we haven't studied, but two that we have are songbirds. They increased. Some songbirds that we didn't see in any willow patches before uh, this event occurred, like catbirds and Wilson's warblers and willow flycatchers, all came back. Uh, and also, my long-lost friend, the beavers, started to return. I did an aerial survey of the entire park in 1996. And if I just want to talk about northern Yellowstone, I only found one beaver colony. Oh, my goodness. There's about 14 now in that area. Wonderful. And that's because the willow has bounced back. So this has been a big story for the return of all of carnivores to Yellowstone. So just a dramatic and tremendous increase in biodiversity. Very well put, yes. So, Doug, that was a lovely explanation and such um, an incredible demonstration of how nature works and And ecology predators the importance of having apex predators in a quote-unquote healthy ecosystem so Doug if you could describe for me a sublime moment when you were standing in the field working in the field and saw or felt something that that brought it all home for you when you realized that the work you had done and the studies you had completed were a success well, it's tough. There's several, and I tend to be a little bit emotional, spiritual, as well as try to be scientific. So sometimes 
it's not a moment when you're looking at something that you know wolves have brought about change in but uh as i mentioned i grew up in ohio my dad had a camp the camp had over 100 horses because during the fall winter spring uh when kids are in school he taught uh, or, or at his camp riding lessons mm. so i grew up riding and so i have a, a strong affinity to horses besides wolves and there's been a few times when i've been out in the park riding alone and, and horses don't usually like to go out alone so i had a pack horse so the horses were calmed the, the three of us my saddle horse a pack horse and me riding the mountains of Yellowstone, just the three of us. And when you see a wolf or a grizzly bear under those circumstances, you feel as alive as you're ever going to feel. And just being out with two non-human creatures, the horses, off trail, riding through Yellowstone, this one particular ride I'm thinking of, if you want me to narrow it down to one thing, uh, across Mirror Plateau, alone, and you look at the environment and you think it's totally wild it's one of the few places in the lower 48 really one of the few places in all the united states that has wolves cougars grizzly bears black bears coyotes wolverines lynx bobcat all of these carnivores that are so so rare and when you're riding across with two friends horses alone and you see one of those critters, there's nothing better. I think you're going to make me cry. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Just, uh, I totally, totally pictured that all. So lovely. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Doug, for that poetic description of our own American Serengeti that to a great extent well, we have lost. It's, it's good to hear such stories of ecological success. We have been talking with Dr. Doug Smith, the project leader and senior wildlife biologist of the Yellowstone National Park Wolf Reintroduction Project. Doug, we thank you so much for taking the time to join us on KOTO, and we also thank you for your tremendous lifelong work in conservation and for bringing the howl of the wolf back in the process, increasing the health and diversity of this grand ecosystem. This is Soleil and Ramona Gaylord with Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna, and thank you so much, Doug. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun to do. And last but not least, our third guest to discuss the reintroduction of wolves in the West for Voices of the Valley Flora and Fauna is Kevin Bixby. Kevin has a bachelor's in biology from Dartmouth College. Go Big Green. He has worked in the San Francisco Bay Area and began volunteering at Friends of the Earth, where he rubbed elbows with the late, great David Brower and worked to save condors and whales. Kevin earned a master's degree in natural resources policy at the School of Natural Resources at the University of Michigan. And in 1988, Kevin moved to New Mexico and started the Southwest Environmental Center. He is also a wolf advocate and has been an advocate of the Mexican wolf reintroduction program in Arizona and New Mexico. And he will speak with us today about the Mexican wolf reintroduction. And before we begin on that, um, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about how a proposition like 114 lands on a ballot in the first place and what it tells us about the state of wildlife management in the country today. Sure. Uh, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, the fact that 
um, uh, one fourteen. Yes. Going is is okay. You you guys have so many. We don't have any citizen initiated uh, ballot measures in New Mexico. Neither did New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're you're lucky. Yes. Um, and anyway, but you have a lot to keep track of. Um, hence the the high number one fourteen. So <laughs> anyway, the, the reason why um, these initiatives end up on on the ballot is because of a a systemic failure on the part of our state wildlife agencies to reflect the will of the people when it comes to how our wildlife is managed. And it's not just Colorado. It's it's the same in every state because essentially in the United States we have 50 different versions of the same system of wildlife management, uh, which is basically, uh, in essence, a system that evolved to protect game species that were of interest to hunters, elk, deer, bighorn sheep, etc. Uh, the system emerged at the end of the 19th century when um, sportsmen like Teddy Roosevelt and Aldo Leopold and Gifford Pinchot were worried about uh, the imminent extinction of game animals that they liked to hunt. Um, and they had good reason because the, the hunting was completely unregulated back then. There was hunting for markets. Uh, there was hunting for food. Um, and it was just a big mess. And so the system uh, emerged of game laws to, to regulate the take of game species. And then uh, game departments, game wardens, and departments to enforce the laws. But it really came out of a, uh, a focus on protecting game species not biodiversity and in fact the system that emerged was hostile to predators like wolves and mountain lions and and did not really do anything to protect those in fact the game departments were actively involved in getting rid of predators like that because they were seen as competition with human hunters for game animals they're also of course seen as threats to livestock and that is still the case today we still have this system of state wildlife agencies that are primarily focused on providing hunting and fishing opportunities on focused on protecting and, and, and enhancing game populations um, hostile to native carnivores like wolves and indifferent to many species that are not really of concern to hunters or ranchers or farmers. So that, that includes like, oh, I don't know, bats and- Prairie dogs. <laughs> prairie dogs, although yeah. prairie dogs are, are of concern to ranchers. <laughs> um, but they, you know, in many states, New Mexico, for example, prairie dogs are completely unprotected by state law. And so you can go out there and kill as many as you like, which actually people do. Um, coyotes are completely unprotected. Um, and so on. And this is the case in most states. You have a state wildlife agency that has this legacy of being focused on game species, uh, hostile towards carnivores, and indifferent towards most species that don't fall into either category. Um, and then you have on top of that, those game departments, you have a commission, which is uh, oversees the department or advises the department. And that commission is appointed by the governor in most states. 
And those commissions are dominated by uh, what we call consumptive users, hunters, fishermen, anglers, I should say, trappers, and uh, agricultural interests. And sometimes, as in New Mexico and Colorado, you'll see one seat, uh, sort of a token seat that's reserved for um, wildlife advocates. Or a nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah, a nonprofit. Yeah. So um, that's the system. And because of that system, um, as people's attitudes towards wildlife have changed to a greater acceptance, a, a greater awareness of the importance of all species in the in the scheme of things and the importance of ecosystems and awareness of the global mass extinction has increased and as people and this has been documented in recent surveys people's attitudes have been changing from viewing animals wild animals as resources to be used by people to having intrinsic value rights of their own to exist apart from their a usefulness to humans. Yes, um, I think that was this, reflected, uh, Kevin, if I could interrupt for a minute, sure. in our uh, attitudes here in Colorado where over 200,000 people signed uh, a petition that they support uh, wolf reintroduction here. So I, I, I do think that that attitude is very much shifting. Exactly. But the problem is there's a disconnect between the systems of, of state wildlife management that are in place in Colorado and elsewhere and these changing attitudes, and I would say ecological understanding of the importance of of um, carnivores to shaping and, uh, and 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 maintaining ecosystems. Uh, so you have this disconnect. Uh, you have this this system which is looking backwards, focused on game species, not really an ecological focus, and more of a domination based on a values of domination that see wildlife as as you know resources to be exploited versus where the rest of the where the majority of the public is at today and you saw it in colorado when um the colorado parks and wildlife commission rejected a a uh, a proposal to reintroduce wolves into colorado in colorado as i'm sure many of your listeners know um is has has ample unoccupied wolf habitat plenty of praise uh, base elk and deer, uh, lots of wilderness areas, and it is the bridge between wolf populations to the north, all the way, stretching all the way to the Arctic, and wolf populations to the south, stretching down into Mexico. Down in your and country. It, it, yes, in in New Mexico, Arizona, and into Mexico. Now there is a small population of reintroduced Mexican gray wolves. So. Um, Colorado is really important for wolves and you know wolves were there historically they deserve to be there again and they don't deserve to be in little pockets which are essentially outdoor zoos one of the real values of wolves to a uh, to ecosystems is their ecological role the, the, what they do and we've seen that uh, as Doug Smith said in Yellowstone I mean, it's really, truly amazing the effect that wolves have had on the ecosystem in a very positive way in Yellowstone. And they could have that same effect in Colorado were they allowed to um, uh, thrive and, 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 and reoccupy habitats uh, on their own. So in a nutshell, Kevin, um, 
When you say they've had a, a really great effect, what, so in regards to the sixth extinction crisis, by having the wolves here in Colorado, it's helping uh, our, bio, it's increasing our biodiversity and overall increasing the health of of our ecosystems, our great ecosystems that we have here in Colorado. Would you concur and just briefly speak to that, how, how that's bolstered by the wolf? Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's just more and more research emerging that demonstrates the, the, uh, the ecological importance of apex predators like wolves. These are carnivores that are at the top of the food chain, wolves and mountain lions. And uh, even coyotes are considered apex predators and um, jaguars. Um, and then, you know, that's just in North America, you go to Africa and it's, it's as well, and, and in the ocean ecosystems as well. These species that are top predators have an outsized influence um, on the, the shape and functioning of ecosystems. And, you know, I, I'm not an ecologist. Um, I have a bachelor's in biology, but I haven't practiced as a scientist in ever. But <laughs> I know enough to know that, that that is, there's more and more research to support that, um, that point of view. Um, and we really, and, and so we have this, you know, unfortunately in North America, historically, we have wiped out most of our apex predators from their historic range. Yes. So um, it, in Colorado, actually, and, um, again, an interjection here in 1945, uh, the last wolf was eradicated by the eradication program. So we haven't seen one here. Um, well we have, but that was when the last historic guy was, was seen. So. Yeah, and, and what a sea change we've had in both our scientific understanding of how ecosystems work, because back then, uh, really, there are very few people speaking up for carnivores. Uh, even Aldo Leopold was gung-ho in getting rid of predators in his early career. He changed his views. But um, back then, it was, you know, most, there was, you know, there was pretty much consensus around, you know, let's, you know, God made a mistake by creating these predators let's fix the mistake that god made now we know better and people's attitudes are changing too people are more accepting and 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 view animals as having intrinsic rights so um we have this a lot of work to do to correct this uh, this wrong that uh, happened within living memory of wiping out predators and i think that the uh, uh, prop 114 is, is an excellent step towards righting that wrong in Colorado. Yes, absolutely. And so you um, support this proposition wholeheartedly, I assume, Kevin, and, and it's good for us listeners out here to hear the background there and in making, it's a, it's a important piece of our ballot this November. And certainly this has kind of helped clarify my decision when I'm going to go to vote on that proposition, and uh, we greatly appreciate your input on that. Sure, yeah. and let me just—I'd like to add that, just like going to the polls on November third and voting for a president uh, is is very important. It's only the beginning of the work that we need to be doing. Um, if 114 passes, that is excellent. That's a great first step. But then how are wolves going to be managed once they are introduced? 
it is important that wildlife advocates hold Colorado Parks and Wildlife's feet to the fire and make sure that they implement the plan and it's a good plan and really I would advise the people of Colorado not to support sport hunting of wolves ever at some point that is going to be an issue Uh, wolves will reach um, sufficient numbers they will increase their numbers to the point if, if if this passes there will be enough wolves at some point to take them off the state endangered species list and they uh, and they will likely be delisted from the federal endangered species list. Well, we'll see about that. I mean, that, that is the Trump administration's proposal. But in, in any case, at some point in the future, this is what happened in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. It's, and it's happened in Michigan and Wisconsin as well. At some point, wolves will be delisted from their uh, state and federal endangered species acts and the state will take over management and will want to hunt, allow hunting and trapping. And I really strongly encourage the people of Colorado not to allow that to happen because there's absolutely no reason to hunt these carnivores. Nobody eats them. They control their own numbers. Hunting is not needed. It's, it's just simply wrong. And, and you have an animal like a wolf, which is a, you know, a highly intelligent, family-oriented species, and all hunting does is cause unnecessary suffering and disruption of those social ties in wolf society. So I, I just hope that you know the, the, the work doesn't end when Prop 114 passes. And also, I encourage people to address the systemic reason, the problem, why in order to get wolves back into Colorado, there had to be an initiative on the ballot because you, you really want your state wildlife institutions and policies to reflect the will of the people. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's very good foresight, Kevin, and thank you for thinking ahead in regards to Proposition 114. And in some ways, I think it's heartening that while in our state institutions we aren't seeing as much change, it does seem like the tide of public opinion is on the trend of favoring wildlife. So that is exciting to see, and it's Good to see something like Proposition 114 on the ballot. If anything, it's increasing awareness of the importance of apex predators in our ecology. And so it's it's great to hear this from you, Kevin. Thank you again. And thank you again, Kevin. And thank you, KOTO. This is uh, Soleil and Ramona Gaylord.